Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day, Nina. Hi, Andrew. Welcome back. I'm back from holidays. Look at this scruffy. More scruffy than usual. <laughs> you look more relaxed than usual. <laughs> Let's see how long that lasts. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to last too long. All right, well, let's jump into a couple of things that have happened just as a beginning. There is the... Um, the WorkSafe case. Yeah, well, there's the WorkSafe case around bullying, isn't it? That's- yeah. So I think only two days ago, WorkSafe had charged a director under Section 144 and the company under Section 21 for bullying two workers over a long period of time. And we haven't seen yet what they'll be charged with because they've literally just been charged, so we haven't seen the outcome. But I think it just goes to show that there is a focus on psychological hazards now. Yeah, I think there's a significant focus. And what's interesting is what we've said a number of times before is at the moment it's direct operational directors who are being Mm -hmm. charged. So this is a director who did something. Yeah, who engaged in behaviour. What we're going to see is more sophisticated regulators around psychological hazards starting to charge directors who have a knowledge or to have a knowledge of yeah. the actions of another person. And the employees themselves so, engage in behaviour. Yeah, so look, I think that's a really interesting case. We saw the sexual harassment case, which was where people were charged who were officers who weren't doing the acts. No, I think they were as well. So, officers, were. so the director was involved in the act of sexual harassment, but so was an employee So well. was an employee, sorry. So, I'm yeah. wrong. so we're still stuck at that operation. But it's still expanding it. It is the it scope of what they would have once charged with bullying yeah. and sexual harassment were not the provenance of, of the of safety regulator four no. years ago, and they most definitely are now. The next step is seeing that governance part starting yep. to evolve where a director who ought to be preventing bullying or sexual harassment, particularly under yep. new legislation occurring, we're going to start seeing them charged, but I think this is the thin end of the wedge. Yeah, I reckon within the t- next 12 months for sure. Yeah, okay. Well, let's jump on to the next thing, which is the um, same job, same pay proposal that's come through. Yeah. I'm going to see more of this in our major discussion point, but what the Labor government federally is trying to do is to say, look, if you come and do a job, and it's the same job as an employee working next year and you're a labour hire employee, you've got to be paid the same. And that's at the full rate of pay. So allowances, overtime rates, all of that would be included. And it's the test for same job is really simple. It's like the same types of duties as that classification in the enterprise program or award. And also for employees who've been specifically hired for a role. So that's going to capture everyone. Yeah, and look, it's going to make some industries borderline almost unviable. Yeah, so it's very when, you look at, when you look at the meat industry, for instance, that uses huge amounts of labour hire to actually get around, to provide both flexibility, seasonal flexibility, but also to keep a control on costs, yeah. this is going to have a significant impact because most of them are award-based or slightly above award-based employees. Yeah, and I think <clears> the intention <throat> for this proposal was to address the exploitation and the undercutting of local workers. But a lot of the industries we work with, labour hire is a necessity just because they can't get the workers. And I think the proposal itself hasn't actually considered how will these extra costs be passed on? Like whose responsible is it? They've just said there's a positive obligation on both. But how is that going to affect existing labour hire contracts? Yeah, and look, I, I guess the other thing is it's going to override the enterprise agreements that are in place which have the uplift for labour hire. Yeah. It means that even if you don't have that in your labour hire, in your enterprise agreement, I've just seen my six-year-old daughter wandering around <laughs> carrying folders of documents for the litigation team. I didn't realise when I said work she was actually being hired. <laughs> All right, so let's jump on to now major cases. 
Can I just say this is something we have warned about. Now, there are two cases previously where an OHS or WHS manager has been found guilty. One was in South Australia, one in Queensland. But this is one that really brings home the specific obligations of risk assessment that sit with the WHS manager. Yep, because there's this assumption that if because they're not an officer, they're kind of stepped away from the liability, which isn't true. Yeah, so this is a case where there was a risk of Q fever. Yeah, in a... Queensland Museum, I think. Yeah, for taxidermy. Yeah, that's it. And in the meat industry, it's mandatory that people get vaccinated for Q fever. Q fever is a very serious illness. It can actually kill you, but it certainly can make you incredibly unwell. It didn't happen here, but the WHS manager had done nothing about it for a period of four years once they were on notice of it. Yeah, so I think there was an incident. So she started doing a risk assessment for the risk of Q fever and then four years later still hadn't completed the risk assessment. And, of course, someone got very, very significantly ill from Q fever. And, look, massive fine. So it was a $150,000 fine. It wasn't – she didn't have to pay it because they gave her a good behaviour bond effectively yeah. in it. But it shows how seriously the Brisbane magistrate thought the wrongdoing was. And directly attributable yeah, to her. Yeah, so – I think a bit of a warning out there for both HR managers and WHS managers who we've been talking about over the last three or four weeks because we see that as one yeah. of the, the changes in the way regulators are going to behave. Yep. And it's interesting that in the last two weeks we've had an OHS manager, a WHS manager and an HR manager both being prosecuted by safety regulator. Mm. Right, let's have a look at the next case. This is... Um, Sydney Trains. Sydney Trains. It's a... Again, another case where the Code of Conduct in this said, look, if, you, if you're charged with anything in criminal nature, you must immediately disclose. I don't know how many charges he had. They were 13. Like 13 charges. Involving, <laughs> like, numerous things, but the most important one was supply of cannabis, and they had a zero tolerance Not policy. Not by the bus. That <laughs> <laughs> wasn't that much. <laughs> they had, was he along with a busload of cannabis? No, no. He was, he was a station manager, but... I think the key thing is his role in itself was to train people on the drug and alcohol policy and all of the station managers had to tell new employees, if you have any drugs in your system, you will be fired. Yeah. Yet this guy He's was got in the, the bus. He's got in the bus. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, <laughs> just crazy. And he <clears> purposely <throat> didn't disclose it because he was told by his lawyer to wait till the charges were settled. So they actually found out through an anonymous tip and yeah. got the results from the police. Interesting, though, so in this case, he'd had 37 years of employment. Yeah, 36, yeah. 36, 37. Unblemished record. Unblemished record. So it wasn't harsh because he failed to disclose, but what the court did observe was if he had a disclosed, he may not have been fired. Yeah, or it would have been harsh because if he had disclosed and complied with code of conduct and kept them in the loop as to what happened, because in the end I think he only got community service for the supply charges anyway. Yeah. So it was relatively minor in the end, not a buff. <laughs> <laughs> but that would have shifted it completely. Yeah. The dishonesty really sunk him. But key part of this which Nina has raised in her notes to me is, you know, the nature of the criminal charge has to go to the nature of the work that is being done. Yeah. So, you know, if in this case he was charged with, being angry at somebody in footy game yeah, like may not have been as relevant, okay? Yeah. But drugs, driving, it's a core part of what they do and his and supervision and responsibility yeah. of it. So 
be aware if it doesn't relate to it's like an accountant who steals money, who's an you know who acts as a treasurer for a local footy club and gets that's really relevant. Yeah. But if it's an accountant who gets drunk and falls over, that's like all other accounts. No, no, that's that's unlikely to be an issue. All right, let's go to the next case. I'm in a lot of trouble already. Out of <laughs> too much fun. <laughs> Simple, simple case here. So this is, again, a case of somebody who had a disability, put in a work cover claim. Serious impairment. And then when, so in Victoria, you put in a serious impairment claim before you can bring a common law claim, must be a 30% disability as a whole. Yeah. He had a very significant injury to his hand, which prevented him from doing work that he that he did. But they had affected his life, I think, as well. Yeah, like he couldn't play the guitar. Play, play guitar, yeah. yeah. But they got some surveillance of him washing the car. Yeah, and using the injured hand as well. Yeah, and I just remember I've said to you before, the fact that you have depression doesn't mean you can't have coffee at a local. It's the same sort of thing and the risk of doing surveillance and thinking there's something clever about it. When all the medical evidence unequivocally said he couldn't do it, yeah, you'd have to have compelling evidence of him actually doing the very things they say he can't do yep. rather than some generalist sort of stuff. And this was actually what the authority of themselves bringing the surveillance and saying, look, it should be overturned. But what they found is the medical evidence said it would be very difficult for him to undertake his work and apparently the pain was debilitating, not impossible. So that kind of nuance was enough to get it across the line. Yeah, there's a case that I've appeared for a long time ago where a guy had a very serious serious back injury. In those days, surveillance was not that ethical and they, they put a hole in his tyre. Oh, my gosh. And they showed him putting the tyre back on and when we cross-examined him about it, he said, yeah, and I, was, and I I could hardly move for a week afterwards. So he could do it, yeah. but what arose as a result of it. So try and be objective. Try not to get too caught up in the moment around this sort of stuff because you can, you can get lost. As mm. my dad would say, you could get lost in the long grass. Yeah. I think you've got a really good argument, whereas, in fact, when you look at a whole of the effect of an injury on a person, the fact that someone's injured doesn't mean they can't necessarily do something. It means that it will generate pain if they do. Yeah, and probably exacerbate it. Yeah. Okay, let's have a look at our next one. All right, this is not a complex case. For the high income threshold, monies that you are promised or committed to receiving as part of your remuneration generally, that is a percentage of car use, those types of things, all form within the income for which the high income threshold is measured against. Yep. But anything that is discretionary or not committed to does not. Is That's a simple way of yeah, saying it. So, Nina, really do you want to have a chat about the facts of this case? So this employee had an interesting arrangement. So he was guaranteed 40 hours a week. Obviously, 38 would be ordinary hours and two extra hours would be covered as overtime. But in addition to that, they had a provision which said he'd get paid a higher rate. I think it was like $63 an hour for any additional overtime over the 40 hours a week. And this would happen sometimes. Usually if there was a Christmas shutdown and he had to do work, it would come up. And they said, look, if you add all that overtime up, plus his car allowance, phone allowance, everything else, he was like on 200000 So he's definitely he was on protected. And the high income threshold was 162 oh, at that time. Yeah, it? something yeah. like that. So they're like well and truly out of it. And yep. the commission found, well, no, because you couldn't say with certainty if that additional overtime was going to occur or not. So you couldn't count it towards it. Okay. So but where you've committed or guaranteed through contract for yeah, overtime. So the extra two hours. Yeah, counted. that does form part of the threshold. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, there's some technical stuff and some fun stuff, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Main topic. The um, federal government, again, the Labor government, has come up with an idea around the gig economy and independent mm -hmm. contractors. 
I just want to talk a little bit about the history of where we're coming from. There's three states that have got gig economy legislation that's sitting there trying to protect the underlying entitlements, as the states say, for gig workers. The difficulty with the gig economy is that platforms change and the methods of hiding people from employment status move so flexibly and are so, so almost invisible. And so you do need some mechanism if you decide to protect this group, and I think ethically all of us agree that gig workers do deserve some sort of protection. Those on the horizontal plane of gig workers, those who are doing food delivery and stuff, are the most marginal workers we have in our yeah. economy. The ones on the vertical level, those who Nina and I decide we'll put in to get a job and we do it as a loose collaboration. We're gig workers, we're not contractors. We don't need to be protected because no. we have a set of skills, we're seeking expensive work. We don't need that sort of protection. And, of course, independent contractors have historically needed a significant amount of protection and in key industries get forms of that protection through various bodies like VCAT, so the transport work drivers. And the TWU particularly have been saying for a long time, look, you know, 25 years ago you gave us trucks, you put a burden of us paying and maintaining those trucks and had a workable wage. We lost all our redundancy entitlements. We lost all these other benefits that we would have received. And now we're in a stage with escalating fuel prices where we're yeah. locked into our own contracts where we're going broke. And so Labor's response has been threefold. Uh, the, the, the first one, as they've said with gig workers, look, we need some mechanism which broadly identifies a gig worker rather than a task-based gig worker and that protects the basic terms of him, the minimum standards yeah. around that. And that will come through minimum standard orders. Yeah, and minimum standard orders, although Nina and I have had a bit of an argument about this, <laughs> is a bit like the old awards because what will happen is Nina will like for the bid, she'll love this, I'll make her a TWU organiser, oh. and say, look, for Uber food delivery, we want to make an agreement, we want an order. And I suspect, because there's no detail in this, what will happen is Nina will get that order and then seek to add as response every other food deliverer. Don't know actually what's going to happen. No, yeah. But the detail's just not there. But I understand why it's happening and it's a good thing, but I'm going to raise this point now because I think it deserves. I'm a relatively old guy. I can remember the early awards. They were about four or five pages, six pages. I was here when Keating made the changes in 1991 and 1993 that led to the Workplace Relations Act, and I was there when I saw enterprise agreements being made, which were two pages, three pages. If you look at major awards now in the construction or driving industry, they're 70, 80, 90 pages. Mm -hmm. You look at enterprise agreement for someone like Qantas, they're 180 pages. My difficulty with this is it's all very well unless the industry bodies who run these arguments, rather than employer and employee, get in and bureaucratise it and make it so it can't be understood by the average business. And that's what awards are today. Most people actually cannot administer an award because yeah, they are too complex. complicated. So my fear about the, these orders are we may end up going down that path, which means both the employee and the employer may simply not be able to understand terms and conditions. But that's not what's happening at the moment. So what they've actually said is we'll do minimum standard orders as to, like, pay, like, a very set amounts um, of things. Hours, and I'm saying, hours of work. Yeah, yeah, like it could evolve from it, but like the intention is to address the that was the intention. That was the intention at the beginning, just so you know. With yeah, but, other. you know, this is still open up for submission. So I think it's a really good thing. So it's a good starting point. Um, submissions close on the 12th of May, so they'd open on the 13th of, of April. So there's not a lot of time for submissions. 
And it could still change. It could still change. But look, I think it's a really good thing. The gig economy, I want it to be treated as something different from an employee contractor that breaks down yeah. that old bifurcation of things, which just doesn't work anymore. No. So it's good to do that. It's good there are some protections. My fear is that we'll go down the path of everything else that the Fair Work Commission gets its hand on and industrial bodies collude on to end up with documents to this thing. I feel like it's going to be a bit different, honestly, because the nature of gig economy is it's not as united as, like, employees are. So I think I I hear your fears, but I think that even bodies like the unions who have to advocate on the behalf will have to approach it differently because there are so many gig economy workers and to be like, we'll just cover everyone, I don't think they're going to be able to do it that way. Well, it'll depend on the Uh, Look, they're already doing it, so I reckon (laughs) they will, and I reckon they'll find a way of making money out of the representation which keeps them alive. definitely guarantee that. Okay. The next thing is with independent contractors, and this is, look, Labor Party, Federal Labor Party has a very strong representation from TWU, particularly from New South Wales, right, which is a very powerful representative of the TWU. There is no doubt that independent contractors get a rough end of the deal in the jobs that used to be done by by employees, okay, because they often end up with the liability of a significant piece of plant, the maintenance and responsibility, and there is no doubt that the present methods of protecting those people are limited and they are complex, difficult and slow in responding. And they're usually locked into the contracts that they've yeah. made. So what the suggestion about the Fair Work Commission is threefold, again, with the Fair Work Commission gaining powers in relation to forms of agreement making, and that would be by application, again, by yeah. union. And mutual application, <clears throat> I thought it was. Well, that's not where it's going to end up. Yeah. We both know that. It's going to end up by application and then you're going to be drawn into it because that's the way the legislation yeah, always ends up. Yeah, they have the dispute. Resolution. The second part of putting a dispute process in, but the difference here is here you are genuinely dealing with an independent contract and therefore the decision-making powers of the commission would be elevated to what are called arbitral or judicial powers. Yeah. Real concern. Getting the line there. Yeah, look, without criticising the Fair Work Commission's DNA, there's a reason we have a Fair Work Commission in the way it does and it doesn't have judicial powers is because it deals in a conciliatory process for resolving problems. To elevate that to a legal level would really undermine the capability of a whole group of people who just actually aren't lawyers or weren't practising lawyers in this area in the commission to be making decisions. And I think we'd just be in endless disputes and endless appeals because we're dealing with people who don't actually have the skills to be actually doing that decision making. Yeah. And that's why the commission doesn't have arbitral or judicial powers because they're mostly not lawyers. Mm-hmm. So that's just a quick point on the side. But the next one, again, Nina and I agree but disagree on, is many of these contracts that independent contractors go into are take-it-or-leave-it contracts, and yeah. they are by nature unfair contracts. Particularly in the building industry where they're kind of like, you know, if you don't take it, we'll find somewhere else. There is no equal negotiation no. at all. And so there's this idea of creating an unfair contracts jurisdiction also within the Fair Work Commission. Now, we used to have that in in New South Wales with 104, 109 sections of the Industrial Relations Act, which were a litigator, a plaintiff litigator's heaven. That's the risk. But once again, we've got to understand if we want to deal with the independent contractor issue, we've got to deal with the unfairness. And the unfairness sits within the contract. Yeah. And sits within the contract more than ever now as a result of the High Court decisions around what is an independent contractor and what yep. is an employee where people who are hosts or the principal in it have revisited their contracts to make sure they're very clear it is an independent contractor, but they haven't stopped shaving off the benefit no. down to the people who are the independent contractor. 
Yeah. So I think there is an inevitability about there being an unfair contract yeah. I think jurisdiction somewhere, yeah. whether it sits in the fair work, because once again it goes to contractual analysis, is another issue. And we've seen since JAMSAC and the other cases how much the Fair Work Commission has struggled to apply the law of the High Court. Yeah. And I think with Matt, before he went on parental leave, and you and I, we've talked about four or five cases where it's been very clumsy. Yeah. And it's been very doctrinaire the way that it's been applied, almost as if the President said, look, this is the way it works and you just got to do it. That didn't happen, by the way, I'm just saying that. So we've got to be really careful to give a power to a jurisdiction which doesn't have a skill. Yeah, I agree. I think it's got to be balanced, but the current unfairness in the market is so high and the current methods that are available for them to address that is just, it's not workable. It's no. expensive. So I, do, I do, I agree. It has to Something be un- needs to be done. And it needs to be a quick thing because these people are hand to mouth. So when yeah, they go under. That's right. So when they've got a problem, they need to resolve it in a couple of weeks, yeah. not a couple of years. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of good that's coming out in this proposal. Whether it becomes law or not, who knows? But it's a great discussion. Yep. And it's a great reminder at the moment that the world is moving away from the employment model to a model which has gig workers, independent contractors and some core employees. And there needs to be set a law around all for both the employer and the employee to know what are their rights and entitlements. And the remedies that come out of that need to be quick. Yeah. So that's how we'll come back to it as it starts to evolve and we'll probably know more in about three or four months. I after. reckon it's going to shift after all the submissions, but we'll see. We'll see. Okay, well, let's go on to the case study. Yeah, the one that you thought was funny and I think it's more. No, I don't think it's funny. Anyway, <laughs> Kids Safe Home Incorporated, KSH, was an emergency shelter for kids suffering violence. Amy was the WHS manager for KSH. The board had directed Amy to set up a system to manage recruitment of employees to ensure the children were safe. This involved more than the usual working with children and police checks. The board explained they wanted to ensure there was thorough background checks undertaken, including past employers. Amy had been given the job in 2021. She set up the police checks and working with children processes, but got caught up with other work and didn't finalise with HR the other controls to ensure the children were safe. The chair of the board checked in with the CEO in April 22. The CEO, Mark John, spoke with Amy and the HR manager immediately. The HR manager explained that Amy would prepare the final process, then work with her to settle it. The HR manager, Gavin, was still waiting for it. Amy explained that she was doing some research as to what was the best methods and would come back to the CEO and Gavin. In November 2022, Gavin employed Mark as a child welfare officer. He'd come from a school in charge of a boarding house. Unbeknownst to Gavin, Mark had been asked to leave the school following Mark striking a child in anger in a drunken rage. At the time, Mark had just broken up with his wife and was mentally stressed. As a result, the school agreed to treat it as a resignation. Amy had in draft form the signing of consent to past employers to seek details of their performance, conduct and reasons for leaving. It had not been enacted. Instead, it was a reference check to a person identified by the candidate who turned out to be a close friend of Mark. All right, we're on to the questions then. Mm. Now, this raises a couple of issues and I want to separate the issues right at the beginning. One is, you know, what were the obligations of the relevant internal service providers, OHS or WHS, HR, CEO, and ultimately the governance issue around the board. And the second issue is around this idea of signing off on deeds or saying 
just saying, look, we've just treated as a resignation. We'll deal with that one last. But I want you to keep that in your mind because, remember, that's a very critical representation you make to a future employer. So the first one is can Mark be stood down pending an investigation? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's an imminent threat. So the two reasons are imminent threat or risk to the persons involved or the, the risk of evidence being distorted yeah, or damaged. and the serious by. nature of it. Like, I can't see any reason why you would allow him to continue oh, working. Oh, well, yeah. just a question. Yeah. <laughs> 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 no, I like to put it obviously. Can Mark's employment be terminated if the investigation revealed Mark was intoxicated, pushed the child away and the child tripped on carpet, fell over hitting his head? In other words, the incident itself was bad, but it wasn't as terrible as we first thought. Oh, no, as in he didn't pop. It wasn't a fatality. You know, it was a fatality, but when he pushed the kid back, the kid tripped on carpet, fell over. And oh, right, okay. I see. yeah. But he was intoxicated. Yeah, the breach of duty of care. Well, let's just make it really simple. You don't have to get to the last part. If he's intoxicated, no. it's a breach. That's it's serious mean. misconduct. And serious misconduct under Regulation 107 yes. for the fair work. So that's one part. The second part is you shouldn't be touching any child in your care no. in this manner. So, yes. Can Amy be charged under safety legislation? And if so, what it would be? Now, she was the WHS manager. Over to you, Nana. Uh, so she would definitely be charged under primary breaches, but also reckless endangerment. So she'd be a Section 25 breach because she didn't exercise reasonable care. Yeah, towards other. Wait, no, it would be 26, no. right? Towards other people. Yeah. For the child. Yes, it would. Not towards her. But, but yeah, definitely reckless endangerment because she was aware of the risk and has ignored it. Yeah. And being reckless to it. So she runs the risk of jail over this. I think she'd definitely go to jail. And you're a hanging judge. Okay, next one. <laughs> I wouldn't be a hanging judge. <laughs> Can Gavin be charged under safety legislation? If so, what would he be charged? Now, Gavin was the HR manager. Yeah, so I think for this one, it would also be a primary breach one under Section 26. I don't think I it's think enough 20, to be I think it's 25, 26 is management control. Yeah, but it's 25 is towards other employees. The child is the one you owe the duty to. Oh, is it? Yeah, the yeah, child. We'll have, we'll, we'll, yeah. have argue. we'll come back about that. Up. But, yeah, whatever it is, it's the individual breach. I and I don't think there'd be reckless endangerment. But Gavin did hold the responsibility of people management, of managing the internal systems process for people, and was a person who was aware of the risk and did nothing to follow it up. And there's no evidence Gavin followed it up from only at all. So, And Gavin was the person who recruited with that knowledge of the risk. So I think he's in trouble. I don't think it's reckless in danger. I, I think maybe they'd lay the changes and walk away from it kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I think the CEO is in real strife because the CEO understood the board directed this, understood the urgency in it, did follow it up once at the direction of the board, not on their own, and then made no further following up. Yeah, so they, they really would have needed systems in place yeah. to so check we, that it was happening. We, we had a bit of a discussion before about how serious this is. If I had the window, we're up 17 floors, and the window fell out, and it was Nina's job to actually make sure the window was replaced and the, to manage the safety of it, and Nina didn't for six months, Nina would be in a lot of strife. But so would you. Well, so would I. That's exactly right. So would I. And the fact is that sometimes um, psychological hazards and psychological risks or these implicit threats and risks yeah. are not as observable yes. and therefore they don't seem as high. But not knowing whether a person is safe to manage a vulnerable child is by itself inherently one of the highest risks. It's like a window being knocked out 17 floors yeah. up and therefore... You not only need to ensure it's being happening, you need to have a system to ensure it is happening. Yeah, and I think the key thing here, which came out from our discussion, was it's not based on the consequence. So, for example, if the nothing happened to the child, 
the fact that you allowed the situation to occur and the risk to occur is enough. That is a breach in itself. And that's what the court will focus on. It's not based on the consequences. Yeah, and that the, just mitigates or That's like, right. It's the gravity. So if someone dies, that goes to the gravity of what the ultimate sentencing yeah. will be, but it doesn't change the liability. And yeah, because it's based on how far you've moved from the reasonable standards. Yeah. yeah. So the next question is, is the board, particularly the chair liable? And I, I think there is some risks around 144. Yeah, for, probably only 144. For the... For the chair, I don't think they'd attack the rest of the board unless there's evidence in the board of somebody who's raising the risk issue and it's clear to them, then all the board could be liable, but it's usually the chair. Now, this is the one that is uh, contentious, and we've only got 30 seconds, so I'll be really quick about it. When you say somebody we're recharacterising as a resignation, you understand that when you make that representation, whether it's in a deed or whether it's through a letter or whatever it is, it's a representation that you know the person who you're it's doing from, the, yeah, the fired employee, is going to utilise and someone else is going to rely upon it. So it is a representation. And if it causes detriment, then there's actions and competition law if you're caught in competition law. But whatever you've done, it's a representation you know is going to be relied upon. So both Nina and I, when there are serious wrongdoings, we're very careful and won't allow that recharacterization. We say, no, look, whatever you don't do, what you can say is, look, we, we will not make comment on the basis of termination. That's how you should respond yeah. if someone asks you about it. But yeah. if someone's done something very bad and there's a risk of it occurring again, it's not just we're not getting on or the performance has been a bit rough. It's something which is really serious misconduct, which could happen again in the future. Please never, ever enter into a deed of recharacterization because you are, and there are cases on this, effectively giving a person a false reference. And okay? you could be sued for it. Yeah, so if the common law claim was brought by the family of the deceased child and that happened to the organisation, they would join the school for the misrepresentation that occurred. Now, the school would come back and say, well, you never made any proper inquiries, had you yeah. asked us. It would be difficult, but there's where the level of risk lies, so you don't want to do that. Right. I've got to tell you, that's it for this week. Yeah, thank great, you for great joining us. Thank you for joining us. Thumbs up. Yeah, I've got to say, we need, up. no, that's hands up. That's I was waiting for them. <laughs> yeah, thumbs, thumbs up. up. See you later. Bye bye. bye.